when you look at the characteristics, friends, of when revival breaks out, revival breaks out in conditions that are very much like we have today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Lead Forward podcast. I'm your host, Dave Funk. On today's episode, you'll get to hear a recording from the 2017 District Conference for the BC and Yukon District of the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. We had a fantastic guest this year, a researcher named David Kinneman. You may know him as the president of the Barna Research Group, and he's also written many best-selling books which outline excellent research into issues which are very relevant to the church today. Uh, He visited our conference to introduce us to the ideas in his most recent book, which he co-wrote with Gabe Lyons. It's called Good Faith. Subtitle, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. If you're a pastor or Christian leader of any kind, you will find this book and his talk very, very helpful as you help navigate those you lead in understanding these issues and living out their implications. So thanks for tuning in. Here's David Kinneman. Well, good evening, brothers and sisters. Oh, well, come on, one more time. Good evening, brothers and sisters. Hey, that's better. So I flew up this morning from uh, our hometown of Ventura, California, uh, near Los Angeles, uh, which, which is, is uh, right on the coast in Southern California. You could almost kayak there from here. Uh, it might be a long, a long journey, but it was uh, a short flight. And so it's a pleasure to be with you today to talk a little bit about some of the things that we're learning in our research. So I run a company called Barna Group, Um, How many of you are familiar with a company called Barna? Awesome, awesome. Well, for those of you who aren't aware of it, uh, we are a social research company. So we do more than 50,000 interviews every year, trying to understand what's happening in culture. And we're sort of a social research company. We do market research for various organizations and ministries and churches. Uh, And so I'm basically a geek, right? I'm I'm a stat nerd. I'm a geek for Christ's sake. How about that, right? Um, It was such a cool thing to see you guys recognize some of the 50-year veterans in ministry. And where's Pastor Les? Pastor Les? Did he just step out? Because I was wondering whether uh, whether the the Royal uh, uh, Cruise Lines need a statistician uh, to be a part of the team. So maybe you could ask him a little later. I I I think I could be really good at PowerPoint slides on those cruise lines. All right, so here's what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, you know, we're going to talk for a, about an hour, show you some of the things we're learning in this research. Tomorrow, we're going to talk about this next generation of millennials and some of the things that the church is doing as we try to connect with a generation that in, in some ways has lost its way. Um, and part of what I want to help you think through tonight is, is what is it that God is doing in this province, in, in your churches, in your ministries, in your Bible colleges, relative to our times, to our broader culture. And we want to talk about the context tonight of what God is up to. Our company, we get our, our mission sort of statement from 1 Chronicles 12.32. 1 Chronicles 12.32 talks about the tribe of Issachar, people who understood the times and knew what the people of God should do. Okay, so tonight, what I'm hoping we could do is use our prophetic imagination to see what God is up to and begin to lean into the things that God is doing in the world. And we have to understand the context in which we're ministering. This is one of the things that I learned from my mentor and boss, uh, George Barna. He, he, uh, he told me this, this notion that we don't have to like the trends, but we do have to deal with them. 
right? And so part of what I want to try to help you understand is that the world is changing, and it's changing in some very specific ways. And the way that we respond as people of Christ, being driven out by God's Spirit into the world, like we, we can have really awesome church services, and, and we might be able to attract some people into those church services. And I'm going to encourage you, I'm going to give you some, some kudos for the great things that you're doing. I mean, just, just look at the 50-year the veterans, look at the ministries you guys are doing for refugees and, and Bible colleges and other things. Like, that's good stuff. And maybe all of that, maybe all of that is prelude to what God wants to do with you in this province, in this ministry, in this movement. Maybe there's some things that we need to understand about what God is up to, about the skepticism of a generation, about some of the challenges that we're facing. Um, for me, um, you know, I'm a lifelong um, Pastor, some my my dad's a pastor of a church. He's been a church, pastor of a church in Phoenix for many years. Judith Christ and her husband took my dad's church. Um, so it's a really cool thing to to see you tonight, Judith, and just to think about sort of succession and how you guys have faithfully carried on uh, my dad's ministry, where he worked for more than fifty for more than thirty years. And so I'm a pastor's kid. I actually thought I would be a pastor. Uh, I, I, as I told you, I'm a geek. And so I read one of George Barna's books and got into this work of being a statistician. And so for me, I want to try to help you understand what's happening in our broader culture. And what, what for, what's interesting, I think, is um, uh, this, this notion of, of the, the world changing. I've been, I've been at this company now for 22 years. And so through all the research and stats that we collect, there's different things that we're learning about different trends and different sort of things that are happening but one of the, I was, I was working as a youth coach uh, in one of our, our local churches in Ventura, California. This is about 12 years ago. And one of my best friends, Eddie Ramos, is the youth pastor at the, at the time. And he talks about this young woman who came up to him, to her, to, to him and asked this question, like, what would the Bible have to say, Eddie, about selling my eggs? All right. And so Eddie Ramos is the youth pastor. And um, he comes over to me and we're talking about this question. And Ventura, California is, you know, sort of like here in British Columbia, it's a little bit agricultural, and I'm thinking to myself that this young woman, Colleen, lives in a small apartment. I didn't realize she was raising any backyard chickens, um, and I'm thinking that we're talking about organic eggs, and that wasn't the question she was asking. We hadn't been taught that in, uh, in Bible college. She was asking that she had found a fertility clinic online, and for thousands of dollars, she could donate her eggs. She could, she could, what would, what would, she could sell her eggs. What would the Bible have to say about that? Part of what is happening in our times is that we're living through an age of, of complexity. See, human nature doesn't change. God's nature doesn't change. But our culture changes. The context changes. And tonight, that is especially what I want to lean into about why we feel so much tension as believers, as believers who, who, who have this strong conviction that these ancient words are living and active in our lives and that they mean something for us today. And that just feels like crazy and weird, right? And so we want to talk about these two major challenges that the church is facing. There's these two big perceptions that the Christian community is facing today. Those, those two perceptions are that the church is irrelevant and that it's extreme, all right? Irrelevance is something that we believe has been growing for many, many years. So I'm going to draw like a, a, a line chart here, right? So for many years, 
like this perception of irrelevance has been growing and growing and growing and growing. And we, we, we see in the research now that 59% of millennials, 59% of millennials who grow up in the church will walk away from either the church or at least from their, possibly even from their faith. We're going to talk a lot about that tomorrow, this sort of you lost me phenomenon and why it is that so many people who grow up Christian seem to lose their faith. Again, this happens in every generation, but we think it's happening with more frequency and that, that, that the challenges that this new generation is facing are, are even more particular. They're more, um, they're more diabolical. They're, they're, it's, 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 really, it's really crazy what's happening. So irrelevance is one of these long, sort of slow-growing trends. And <clears throat> listen, in, in the States, uh, a huge proportion of people describe themselves as Christian very similar in many ways to here in Canada. You are more post-Christian than most of the faith indicators that we measure in, in the United States, but you're still a very Christianized nation. And, and in the States, you know, seven out of 10 Americans say they have a personal relationship with Jesus that's still important in, in their life. They believe the resurrection literally happened, except they really have no idea how to connect the dots and actually live as disciples. See, I can, I can maybe make fun of, of uh, the United States a little bit tonight. Um, we have a very stable political environment now. Um, <laughs> but aside from that, you know, we've been so busy trying to be a Christianized nation, we forgot what it means to really try to follow Jesus. And, and I want us to think about what does it look like for us in a, a nation where, where, you know, Christianity is increasingly viewed as irrelevant um, you know, in, in the States, we find that a majority of Americans have no idea that a lot of the social good that happens, poverty assistance, working with the homeless, um, helping, you know, single parents, uh, most people don't realize that a lot of that actually happens because of faith-related organizations. Irrelevance. Doesn't matter. So here's just a little uh, story. My, uh, my mother-in-law, she actually lives in Seattle. And a lifelong Christian, doesn't go to church very often, uh, but absolutely would describe herself as a Christian. Uh, a few years ago, she was visiting our home in Southern California. My wife had gone to bed. We had young kids at the time. I have, by the way, three kids, 17, 16, and 12, Emily, Annika, and Zach. And so the kids were in bed, but my mother-in-law uh, mother and I were watching the television. We were watching the Discovery Show, a Discovery Channel program about big cats, so jaguars and pumas and other kinds of amazing creatures and during a commercial break my mother-in-law Janice says you know David in my next life I would like to be reincarnated as a tiger again I went to Bible school no single answer was coming to mind from any of the classes or any of the training that would do that question or that statement justice true confession I said to my mother-in-law, you know, Janice, they are beautiful animals. <laughs> that was the best I could do on short notice, guys, I promise. So I told my wife the next morning, you're never going to believe that your mom believes in reincarnation, and furthermore, she wants to be a tiger. I mean, I guess that's a high aspiration, but... Um, so what, what happened was later that year, her birthday comes rolling around, and my wife, we have a little bit of a weird sense of humor, my wife and I, but, but she bought a greeting card with a photograph of a tiger on the front. 
but it was blank on the inside. And so uh, I, I said to, you know, Jill, what are we supposed to, you know, write on the inside? Like, happy birthday, Janice, you're almost there. <laughs> Earn your stripes every day. I mean, there's like so many possibilities with this one. Go get them, tiger, you know. I did write, this is, this is, uh, this is true, I wrote, I wrote, happy birthday, Janice, I hope your wildest dreams come true. <laughs> I figured that was safe enough. Uh, friends, she was, she was actually visiting her house again uh, this last year, the, the Olympics happened to be on, commercial comes on, uh, Tiger runs across during one of the, one of the adverts, and she, she's told all the kids, she's like, you know, you know, guys, I want to be reincarnated as a tiger. They're like, yeah, we've heard. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> It's like, my, my wife's name is Jill. It's like, Jill, your mom is a tiger mom. You get it, right? It's, it's true. Um, all right, so here's the deal. This is the proof of irrelevance in my, my family's life of, the, of like a lifelong Christian faith uh, where she, she's like, you know, a, a lifelong Christian but, but believes in reincarnation. It sounds kind of cool. She'd like to be reincarnated as a tiger. And, uh, and so this is just one more example, Okay. Now, the other major perception, irrelevance is one. The second is this idea of extremism. Extremism, right? Now, we believe this is a growing, kind of a spiking trend. We showed you this sort of long, grow, growing trend of irrelevance, but we believe a spiking trend is that of extremism, that, that religion is actually part of the problem. 46% of adults believe that religion is actually part of the problem, or furthermore, 42% believe that People of faith are part of the problem. You probably remember the, the attacks on Paris uh, back in November of 2015. And at that time, you know, there was this sort of outpouring uh, on social media. There was this thing called hashtag pray for Paris. And I want to show you an example of something that came from Instagram, which is a so social media platform where it says, friends from the whole world, thank you for this hashtag, pray for Paris, but, but, we don't need more religion, right? Our faith goes to music and kisses, life, champagne, and joy. You see what they're saying? They're saying your religious expression, even your prayers as we're trying to lament this great tragedy, we don't want you to be praying for us because that might cause more extremist expressions of religion. See, irrelevance is sort of safe and neutral. You can ignore things that are irrelevant to you. But if it's extremist, you have to put it in a box. You have to constrain it. You have to legislate about it. You have to say that's bigoted hate speech, right? There's a, there's a different uh, energy to it. And so we think that this is part of the new context, that, that Christians are facing a context in which you're either irrelevant or you're extreme or both. And these are some of the major headwinds that are shaping the experiences of our kids and our grandkids and the cultures in which God is putting us. In the research, we went through a whole range of different experiences. This all comes from a, a new project my friend and I, Gabe Lyons, did called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. And we go through 20 or 25 different things that society would label as extremists, and we, we actually document the percentages of people who would believe these things are extremes. Let me show you four of them 
So using religion to justify violence at 93%. Um, I often wonder, like, where are the other 7%? What are they thinking? Uh, we did one study where we asked people, like, do you wish you had a, were able to live a, a, more, a more meaningful life? And it was like 76% of, Amer of Americans said yes, right? Like, what are the other 24% thinking about, right? Um, Netflix, per perhaps. Um, <clears throat> all right, so try, nothing against Netflix, just, just, a, just a joke. Um, all right, so trying to convert others. 60% of Americans believe that trying to convert others, trying to share your faith, is extremist with a stranger, right? The very act of evangelism is viewed as extreme. Believing that same-sex relationships are morally wrong at 52%, quitting a good job to pursue missions. Many of the people who we just recognized for their years of service, their decades of service, would be viewed in some way as extremist, as so crazy and out there that they, that's like they don't count for sort of nor normal life. Now, it was something like 55% of people say that if you were to pray for a stranger in public, that would be extremist. All of these really remarkable ways in which the mainstream um, culture is now defining these, these actions of being a devout Christian as extreme. So let me remind you where we're at and what we're trying to do. I am hopeful about the moment the church is in, despite all of these headwinds. In fact, I have some more things that I have to show you about the challenges that the church is going to face. Some people sort of talk about us at Barna as though we have the spiritual gift of discouragement. I have to show you the truth of where things are at. I have a few more things I want to show you, but I want to remind you that where we're at in my discussion is that I want, I'm so hopeful about what the church can do to respond to these trends. I believe that we as a church can respond positively and with hope and that actually suffering increases the church's witness. These hard times are here for us to increase our devotion to Jesus and, and the, the, our ability to sort of band together and show what it means to truly be devout in our faith in what Jesus calls us to do in the world. It's really, it's been easy, relatively speaking, to be Christian in North America. But are we really following Jesus? Many of the things that, <clears throat> I'm going to sort of interrupt the, the bad news by just reminding us of where we're at in some of this, but the, um, many of the things that we, I've been sharing, uh, this, this project came out about a year ago, and um, <clears throat> I was thinking about a lot of these numbers, these numbers, they work on me. God, God's calling me to be a geek, and, and they work on how I think about the world. And sometimes I'll just literally be in a public place, and I'll sort of think about, you know, 17% of you folks in this room do such and such or think this way. And, like, I see little numbers floating above your heads or I'm at a train station or whatever. And so, you know, th that's just the way God's wired me. Um, but, but the, the, this notion of how this should change our lives, I just want to share a little story. You know, about a month after this book came out, my friend Gabe Lyons and I had been on a tour. Uh, we had a lot of fun uh, speaking at a lot of churches and a lot of different conferences when, when the book Good Faith had come out. And the fact that 55% of Americans believe that it's, it's extremist for us to pray for a stranger. And so we were, my, my family, over last spring break, we went uh, to the Grand Canyon. We went, we hiked all the way to the very bottom of the Grand Canyon, my home state of Arizona, and uh, camped at the bottom and then hiked back out. Well, before we went down, we were at the Grand Canyon Lodge, and uh, my, my, my teenage daughter forgot her jacket, which was really cool of her to do that, right? Um, but anyway, so, so we're buying her a brand new jacket in the Grand Canyon Lodge, 
And um, one of the clerks was uh, limping, who was helping us. She was got a brand new, she got one of the, the, a different size jacket for my daughter, went back into the, the warehouse, got it. And I noticed that she was limping. Uh, my daughters had gone up to get something else to, out of the store. And my son, my little 12-year-old, uh, was standing next to me. And uh, I'm thinking about like 55% of people think this is extremist, what I'm about to ask you. And it's been a long time, friends, since I had asked somebody to pray, a stranger to pray in public. I'll just be honest about that. And, and so I said, you know, this may seem a little strange, but I, I noticed you're limping. Would you mind if I prayed for you? I think I asked her a little bit about why she was limping and she had gone on a long hike. And uh, this sense in which she, you know, it's like I had to come into work. Otherwise, I felt like I was going to lose my job. And so she said, I said, would you mind if I pray? And she kind of was taken aback a little bit. And she said, I guess I'd be, I'd be okay with that. And, um, of course, my, my, my little boy kind of le- turned his head to me and was like, what are you doing right now, Dad? And um, so I just prayed a simple prayer. Nothing miraculous happened. But she thanked me. And as we walked sort of away from her, my son looked at me and said, Dad, we really believe this stuff, don't we? Right? See, see that's part of what it means for us to be extremist in the right way. Under no circumstances should we use the gospel as an excuse to be a jerk, right? Some of us are so busy looking at the unrighteousness in the world that we forget about the self-righteousness in here. And we, this is one of the huge shifts. We'll talk a little about it tomorrow, about how it is that the church, how it is Galatians teaches about this, that we sometimes forget the very mission of grace in the world. And so I want to remind us, though, that the important demonstration of faith, these extremist kinds of things that we're we're talking about, actually prove to the world around us, to our very families, that this stuff really matters. That this isn't just about some sort of job or profession or thing that we do. That's what it looks like for us to be the right kind of extreme. Now, the second layer, so we talked about extreme and irrelevant. The second layer of what I want to describe about the nature of the problems that we're experiencing relate to what I want to call the new moral code. And there are, there are all sorts of expressions of this. this. This set of data that I'm about to show you was, was so crazy to me. Um, it was like, I've been doing this now for 20-something years and uh, there, there are a lot of times where I'm not actually that surprised by the findings. I can kind of predict where I think some of the public opinion might, might come out. But this data was so crazy to me. It was, it was literally like jaw-dropping. Uh, it came back from our polling about a year and a half ago. And this was that we asked a question like, the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. And we find that 91% of adults believe that's true. The best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. We asked a whole range of different questions around this sort of me-centered morality. And this was one, people should not criticize someone else's life choices at 89%. This is one of the big shifts we think that's happening in our culture is that you're, you're not allowed to talk about someone else's life choices. You're not, whatever anybody else wants to do is fine for them, but you're not allowed to sort of confront that and talk about why those might not be the right things for them to consider doing. How about this one? People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society at 79%. That's not even logically possible. Let me give you an example, which is pornography. 
I see we have, you know, like some different ages and stuff, so I'll talk sort of just broadly about this. But do you realize <clears throat> in this context, we are living in an era, pornography is not new, right? This is not, a, this is not, a, this is as age old as human sin. But what is different is that in the very air, there are explicit images that are instantly accessible to anyone at any time. That's new, right? That, that, that's a, a huge shift that's happening. And, and this notion of you can believe whatever you want is just crazy because people are working in this industry. These images are changing people's lives. It's, it's changing their, their thoughts about marriage and sex and sexuality. And this is just a ridiculousness that we believe that you can believe that you can believe whatever you want and that those won't affect society. When we interview teenagers, we find that we ask them about the different morality of different, uh, so we, we went through a whole list of different things like lying or cheating on a spouse or not recycling or viewing pornographic images. And do you realize that teenagers today believe that it is morally worse to not recycle than to view pornography? When they have a conversation with a peer, nine out of ten teenagers say it is either morally neutral, like it's no big deal, morally accepting, it's just normal, you should do it, or sort of like, you know, um, they don't even talk about it. Only one in ten teenagers say when they talk about this with their peers, it's like, you know what, that's probably not a really good idea for you to be doing this. This is this brand new world that we're living in. And so for those of us who are faith leaders, um, you know, there, again, there's nothing new under the sun. I want, I want to just point to here in the very last verse of the book of Judges. What does it say? In those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever was right in their own eyes. This is absolutely the moment that we're living in, and yet it is being powered, it is being supercharged, by these digital devices. And these are incredible tools that are changing the way human beings relate to one another. And none of us are asking to put the digital genie back in the bottle. What I am asking us to consider is what would it be like for us to live faithfully in this new digital context? How do we do this? Is our theology, is our belief in Jesus, is our belief in the power of the Spirit going to supersede, going to come, uh, you know, going to power us in this new digital age? Of course it can, but how will we learn how to be faithful in that? Let's do something just a little bit different when we talk about this sort of self-centered morality. By the way, one of the key shifts that's happening, friends, is that as we look at those sets of data that I just showed you, the percentage of practicing Christians who believe the same stuff is almost as high as the general culture. And for those of you who are young people, who are millennials, looking over here at the band, looking at, at other, others in the room, do you realize that your generation, even among practicing Christians, you believe that crap at almost the same rate as the general population? And, and so how is it that we can, we can sort of think about re-Christianizing people's um, understanding of how God operates? And, and here's the crazy thing. What we're learning in the research is that in the past, people had a sense of external sources of authority, scripture, the church, government, you know, leaders in the culture, you know, police officers. But in our new culture, it's like whatever you want to do is what you should do. And people believe that that's the case. 
So we, as we think about how, and even in the church this is happening, so how is it that we can gently but firmly remind people that the truth exists outside of ourselves, revealed through Scripture? It's been cool for me seeing in my own family as we begin to, to sort of identify and talk about this sort of new moral code and what does it mean for us to live a countercultural life. It's been fun to see even my own kids respond to this. Um, so my daughter, Annika, she's my middle daughter, uh, we were looking through a furniture catalog uh, about six or seven months ago, and this was just a teen furniture catalog, and, and so she was saying, hey, Dad, a lot of these posters and the art that you can buy actually remind me of that new moral code that I've heard you talk about. So let me just show you a few of the posters that represent the sort of the ideology of this new moral code. How about this? Some of you have probably heard of this. This is called You Only Live Once. You Only Live Once, Right? which isn't itself a bad idea. It's just that it, it, it has this sense in which, like, just go for it. Live for the moment. Do what you want. You only live once. It won't really matter. Nobody's really keeping track of this stuff. Is that a true idea or not a true idea? How about this little throw pillow? No big deal. I want it all. Just right-sizing your, your ambitions about your life. And then this is my particular favorite. All good things are wild and free. Now, this doesn't even really make sense to me. Um, I had a bowl of mint chip ice cream last weekend, which was neither wild nor free, but it was good, right? So it's like, it's not even like logically possible for this to exist. I mean, I guess you could sort of think about it like, wild horses running through, you know, the Colorado, you know, plains or whatever, but I, I don't even get that, right? You, like, all good things are wild and free. You see how it's so interesting when you listen to pop culture, you, you, when you sort of tune into movies or music, or you think about sort of the messages that are happening in our heroes, it's so interesting to me how this generation is being influenced by this notion of like this new moral code. You just, if you live wild and free, life is best lived without a script, these are the kinds of messages that this generation is receiving. For me, for us, the key is how are we going to respond? And I want to give you a context. We've been talking about this new moral code. I want to talk about maybe a biblical view of our moment, of our context. We live in an accelerated and complicated culture. <clears throat> and you can see up on the screen there just some of the different words just, just a few of the different things that are, you know, nothing new under the sun, but at the same time, the, the, the conversation, the questions, the things that your peers, if you're, if you're still in school, the things that your peers are asking about what it means to live a life of meaning and, and why are we here and, and do I matter and these questions of loneliness and depression and anxiety that this new generation is living with are incredible. And could we have, instead of, you know, uh, when we talk about millennials, let's just even try this experiment. When, when I talk about millennials or the next generation, what are some words or phrases that pop into mind about this new generation? Millennials. I say millennials, you say entitled. Selfies. What else? Creative. Great. Entrepreneurial. They want it all. They love that throw pillow, man. Say it again. 
They want it all now. Yeah, we, we have, um, I mean, I have a, this awesome millennial team at Barna, and, at, you know, at times it's a little frustrating, you know, leading this group. Um, I love them, and it's, it's frustrating. I had one who came after about six months and uh, just an awesome part of our team, and she said, she's like, I feel like I'm plateaued in my career. And I was like, man, you just started, man. You just barely got here, you know. Um, they want it all now. <clears throat> what else? Say it again. Tribal, okay. Distracted. Tolerant. Some people will talk about the narcissism of this generation. Actually, do you know that, that we social researchers have invented a narcissism scale? You can actually take a survey and figure out how narcissists how much of a narcissist you are. Isn't that like weird? I don't even understand that. Um, but, but it's cool. I think it's cool that we geeks have figured out how to measure narcissism. Um, it's cool. Um, but so, so here, look at like transgender restrooms, you know, look, look at all the different issues. One of the mega themes really is this idea of elective identity, elective identity. You get to choose what you want to be, how you want to describe, how you want to present yourself to the world. So what's our opportunity then as Christians to respond to this? I would like us to consider um, the story of Daniel as, as sort of our text, um, as we think about what it means to be faithful in a new context. Let me just read you a, a tiny bit of the early part of Daniel's story. You know Daniel. You know Daniel in the lion's den. You know the other story of this heroes of the faith, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the fiery furnace, right? We know this heroes of faith because they sort of stand up to the powers of culture in their, in their day. But I want to talk about the complexity of what it really means to be people of good faith to show what Daniel did. So, so here's how the story begins. It says, during the, the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. And then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And then the king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchen. They were to be trained for three years and then they would enter his royal service. Now, this is, this is important because for three years, these young men learned the language and literature of, of Babylon. At the very end of the chapter here, it says, uh, God gave these four young men uh, an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meaning of visions and dreams. Now, I just want to point out a couple of really interesting facts about Daniel's life. We sometimes gloss over them. I want to begin by just telling you the punchline for me. as I, Daniel, for me, is one of the, the great heroes, especially for our context. I study and read the story of Daniel with great regularity because it reminds me, as, as someone who's a social researcher, about what does it mean for us to live in a culture of complexity. And, and so there are several key points that I just want to remind us of. First, that Daniel, he and his friends are given a new name. And we forget about this because we tell the end of the story, but we forget about the complexities and the challenges of these young men who are asked to take on an identity of Babylon. 
and they do it with great grace and wisdom and courage and holiness. Daniel was called Belteshazzar, Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael was called Meshach, Azariah was called Abednego, and these are all names of goddesses, of Babylonian de- deities. Later, actually, in, in, the, 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 uh, in the book, um, there's this whole place in which um, the king actually recounts that the reason these young men were renamed because they were renamed after these goddesses, part of their indoctrination process. We often talk about the whole diet, right, where he says for testis for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water as an example of Daniel's great commitment to holiness, and that is true, but think about it. At the end of that whole section, he says, test us for 10 days. And if, uh, if you change your mind, just tell us what to do, right? There's this whole accommodation that he's going through. Or how about in Daniel 2, it's about 24. Um, see if I can find it here briefly. But yeah, it's Daniel 2, 24. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is... is, is out of his mind crazy and he's like you know let's kill all these wise men nobody can interpret the dream and daniel says he went in to see arioch whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of babylon and daniel said to him don't kill the wise men take me to the king and i will tell him the meaning of his dream in other words he's advocating for a type of religious pluralism this would be like daniel saying hey let's keep the mosque on the corner right He's advocating for a type of religious pluralism that blows our minds. So here's the thing I want you to hold in tension. To be faithful in Babylon requires purity, holiness. We've told this story really well in our church environments. This is Daniel in the lion's den. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It also requires not just purity, but proximity. Proximity. We don't tell this story very well. This new generation of millennials, if we're going to be people of good faith, if we're going to have a strong counterculture, it's going to require us to live differently. Let me show you a comparison of what I believe is happening, this shift to what I call digital Babylon. We're living in digital Babylon. It's not about a place. It's about the fact that so much of our identity and our our sense of ourselves, so much of our time is being taken up, sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly, in our screens. And this comparison goes something like this, that in Jerusalem, faith is at the center, but in Babylon, faith is in the margins. In Jerusalem, in a culture that's like Jerusalem, it's monotheistic, it's a slower pace. The idol of that type of culture is a certain sort of false piety. And what does that mean? What do I mean by a false piety? A hypocrisy, a desire to seem Christian. Friends, in the social research, we actually call it a halo effect. What's a halo effect? I'm geeking out up here, guys. I'm talking about social research in front of a room full of pastors, right? A halo effect is simply when you try to present a a better vision, a better version of who you are to a researcher. It's called a halo effect because you want to look a certain way, right? There's a halo effect in a Jerusalem. People say, yeah, yeah, I'm Christian. Yeah, I grew up Catholic. Yeah, it's still, I, 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 that's still important to me. I want to be reincarnated as a tiger, but yeah, absolutely, I'm still a Christian. That's a halo effect. Control, simpler life. In Babylon, faith is in the margins. 
It's pluralistic. It's pluralistic. It's accelerated and frenetic. The idol is fitting in, being up to speed. If you haven't seen the latest, if you don't know what's new, you're, you're like, you're like, you know, you're viewed as out of touch. I was taking home a young girl. She's a neighbor. Uh, I picked her up from her school and brought her home. She's about 18, 19 years old. And there was a new Kelly Clarkson song that was on the on the radio. Um, and I didn't recognize it, and I asked if this was new. And Kelsey, the sweet Jewish girl, was like, oh, no, no, man, this is earlier from the summer. Like, this is not that new at all. It was like three months old, and she was like shaming me that I was not familiar with that, that music. All right? It's open source. Those are just some of the comparisons. Now, let me show you some of the implications of this. In, in, um, next slide. So in Jerusalem, monotheism is assumed, and idolatry is fought. But in Babylon, idolatry is assumed, and monotheism is thought is fought. God's people, there's an emphasis on holiness and behavior. Uh, there's an emphasis on faithfulness and on identity. And I think this just gives us some context then for us to understand what does it mean to be a counterculture for the common good. And this is my great encouragement to you tonight here in British Columbia as you think about what it means to be a spirit-empowered group of churches who want to be on mission with Jesus. You're doing so many things already right. You can see it in the vitality of the room tonight. You can see it in the witnesses of, of, of some of, of your faithful saints who have been serving for so long. You can see it in the way you're serving refugees. You can see it in the band, these young men and women who just are, are pouring out their hearts to the Lord. But what if this is all prelude, friends, to where God wants to take you? And, and here's my thing. I, I love coming to, we're doing more and more work at Barna that's outside the United States. We're doing some research in the United Kingdom, in Australia, in the Philippines, and other places. Like, I am here, uh, thank you for the chance, Ken, to speak to the team. I'm here as much to learn and to, to listen in. I had the privilege of, of of chatting and learning from from Andy a couple hours over from the airport in the snow tra snowy traffic and just li listening and, and learning and trying to trying to ask questions and and for me the problems of American evangelicalism cannot be solved from America we need you to be thinking innovatively about the ways that God is going to be using you on mission in this new era and some of the great things you're doing like like what are the new wineskins what are the ways that God is asking you to do some new things to be a counterculture for the common good here in British Columbia, here in this nation? I have a few ideas for you. Uh, I have four things that I want to. I want to just sort of. These are. These aren't all the answers. These are just a few of the things that we've been thinking about. But I want to start with this: that we would would begin in, in Hebrews ten twenty four. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope that we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep His promise. These ancient scriptures are living and active, and they, they tell us something about how God wants us to live our lives. And then let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and to good works. All right, so those are some of the, that's the spirit on, on which some of these, like, recommendations or ideas are built. So the first idea I have for you is this idea of being countercultural, that the, the church exists to be countercultural for the common good. You're not countercultural just so you can have big churches. You're countercultural for the common good. Just like Daniel, you learn the language and literature of a post-Christian Canadian 
culture of a digital Babylon, not because you love you know, to be out there in the world like that, but because God is calling you to be proximate to the world, to be pure and to be proximate in the world. And then we're all faced with this question of assimilating or accommodating. And accommodation is what, what it sounds like a bad word, but that's what Daniel does. When you check into a hotel, what are they called? Accommodations. When you, when you have something that, that frustrates you in a customer service experience, let me accommodate you. Let me help you out, right? What if we learn how to say, like, let me accommodate you. Let me help you. Does it mean we're going to change our beliefs to do that? Of course not. But how can we be accommodating in the midst of a, of a crazy culture? Um, I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit. But good faith Christians allow their marriages and their families and their hospitality to benefit others. This is some of the things that we could be known for. Another thing that we, we could talk about is that good faith Christians understand the relational consequences of sexual freedom and they offer a better way. These are some of the things that we could be countercultural on. And there are many, many, many more, uh, many of the things that you're already doing. Here's a second idea, that, that we could have the ability as a church to have difficult conversations with grace and with truth. That Paul writes um, in, in, first, in, in uh, Colossians 4, 5, and 6 that we would be able to live wisely with nonbelievers, uh, learn to have, have conversations that are gracious and attractive. Um, we say here that good faith Christians uh, make space for people who disagree. Who is it in your life? Um, Andy asked me this great question on the ride over. Like, how do you make room? How do you listen in on non-Christians? How are you, who's your friends who are, who are people who aren't believers? And are you learning how to make space for them? Again, you don't have to agree with everything they have, they, they say, in order for you to be a good friend with them. Here's the third idea I have for us, which is that we could be thinking about our pedagogical renewal and what do I mean by this? The Christian community needs a renaissance of learning to form disciples for life in exile. Okay, that's a lot of big words. Let me explain what I mean by that. Here's what I'm observing about the church in North America today. We have some of the best communicators on the planet. We're really good at, at communicating, at creating our PowerPoint slides, at podcasting, at all the things that that help us to get the message out. But when we think about how people learn, sermons are only one aspect of that communication, of that rhetorical, of that pedagogical equation. Many of us have been formed through a life-on-life -life relationship or through apprenticeship or through following you know, someone's footsteps. And, and so much of what we're missing is the ability to train people, to educate them about these very complicated ideas and, and topics. Let me give you an example, which is that sexuality, guys, Google's becoming our kids' sex educator. YouTube is, is training our children and our, and our grandchildren to think in these short little snippets and, and the church actually has a strong response, the ability to talk about these issues like human sexuality or a theology of the body requires that we think about these things and talk about them with a, with a great deal of care. I'm actually convinced that we need something like at least 20 hours of content about human sexuality before you can even begin to have a larger understanding of what God designs 
at least 20, right? But so often happens is students are coming in, millennials or others are coming into one sermon. The typical person in the United States, even an active churchgoer, is coming to our churches only 1.7 times a month. And how can we hope, hope to disciple people into a way that is countercultural when you have 30, 45 minutes, you know, maybe once or twice a month, and they're being inundated with hours and hours and hours of content every day that, are, that, are, uh, that, that contravene God's ideas. We need a pedagogical renewal. We need new ways of teaching. We need courses. We need classes. We need better apprenticeship and mentorship programs. You all here in, in British Columbia, I know you're already doing a lot of this stuff. You can do even more. You can do even better. You have to do it. Otherwise, people are going to lose their faith because the church feels like it's, it's, it's basically offering incomplete answers to really complicated questions. What does the Bible say about selling my eggs? All right, the, the fourth idea I have is this idea of vocational discipleship. And this looks like faithfulness in life's complex callings. All right, this is, this is to, to me, one of the things I'm, I'm super passionate about. How can we help prepare people for the complex callings they have when it comes to work, when it comes to all sorts of different aspects of their lives? Um, I'm going to show you something that is, is super cool. One of my clients, his son's name is Keaton. And Keaton is eight years old, and no joke, he put together a PowerPoint plan for his life plan. All right? So my friend Mark asked Keaton's permission and sent this PowerPoint uh, plan to his friend who's a, is a stat geek. And so here's, here's Keaton's life plan. This is an eight-year-old. He, he has 10 life goals. Let me show them to you. Grow up to be a nice Christian man. Get a nice wife. Get a good job, one that I like. Have two kids, each boys, uh, two years apart. Uh, grow as close as I can to God. Uh, make more and more friends as I grow. Work hard in school. Believe in God wherever I go. Number nine, teach my kids about God and help them live their lives as best they can. How about number 10, do not give up in life. That's a sweet top 10 list, huh? I mean, all of us, like that's better than my 43-year-old top 10 list, I'll tell you. Now, this is pretty cute. His next slide is his possible jobs. All right, an engineer, an architect, a hockey player, a Lego designer at Legoland, California, or at Florida. Um, I didn't mention that Keaton lives in Minneapolis. Uh, so he's, he's trying to escape to some warmer climes. All right, now, th this, is, this is too cute for words, but the, his fourth slide is his eHarmony profile. <clears throat> he says that he wants his wife to be a Christian woman, humorous, hardworking, caring, energetic, strong when hurt, is a leader, likes to help others, doesn't care what others think, warning, will not get all of this out of a woman. I promise I didn't even change the font size. Just I directly imported this into my slide deck. So, and a little eight-year-old, it's so cute. All right, so here's the deal. Why do I show you that? Is because I think the church has an incredible opportunity as we think about the vocational aspirations of this generation. We live in an era of great ambition 
Um, people are very ambitious. We want to create things. We talked about someone, someone mentioned, you know, entrepreneurial, creative. Uh, it's interesting that you mentioned those two words. I'll show you in a minute why. Uh, but, but, but the fact that Keaton, at age eight, has certain things he hopes to do for his career. Now, <clears throat> I'm super interested in this. We, I hope to work on a book about this notion of vocational discipleship in the coming years. I think the church has an incredible opportunity for a, a, a renaissance in how we talk about calling. And, and that this is a great gift that we, we have, that we understand the brokenness of the world, that we understand God's imago Dei in us, that we're created for great works, to be a masterpiece in Christ Jesus, right? Like the scriptures are replete with examples of what God has done with his creation and in particular with human beings. And at young ages, people have these ideas. I mean, sometimes people aspire to be, you know, professional hockey players. I know I, I, I always aspire to be a professional basketball player. I pray that if I could be super successful, I would use all that for God's glory, right? It turns out I, I had the height, but none of the speed or anything else. Uh, so it didn't work out for me um, as far as being a professional basketball player. But this notion of how can we, how can we begin to minister to the hearts and the callings of this new generation, uh, let me give you some examples about how we might think about this. Um, first, I mean, it's kind of funny because my kids will have some of their friends come over, and I've been doing this now for like five or six years, so much so that my kids aren't having many of their friends come over very often. But I'll ask their, I'll ask their friends like, hey, Melanie, what is it you want to do with your life? And Melanie's like, what are you, weird? And, uh, <laughs> but, but I'll say, no, no, seriously, I'm really curious. Like, what kind of jobs are you interested? And my daughter, Annika, or my, my daughter, Emily, they'll be like, Dad, you're so, stop asking our friends that question. By the way, being a survey researcher is, is kind of, can have some advantages and some disadvantages as a dad. I still remember, um, uh, this is just not too, too long ago, when I was asking my oldest, Emily, I was like, you know, hey, Emily, did you like that ice cream a lot, a little, some, not at all? <laughs> And she's like, Dad, did you just survey question me right there? But then on the other hand, my boy Zach, we were at In-N-Out Hamburger uh, over the holidays, and uh, his cousin Grant was with him. He lives in Colorado. We live in California. And my son Zach was like, hey, Grant, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much do you like In-N-Out? And I was like, dude, yes, falling in your dad's footsteps. Pulling out the 1 to 10 scale. Love it. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the opportunity that, that I think the church has. We talk about vacation Bible school. What if we did vocation Bible school? I've been asking students, not just my kids, friends, and others, I've been asking in our polling, what kinds of callings do millennials want? And we've come up with three different sort of categories of things that, that young people tell us they aspire to do. There's the entrepreneurial bucket, about half of all millennials say that they're interested in an entrepreneurial career, starting their own business, being a, a marketer, being a, running a nonprofit, employing people, whatever that may be, being an investor. Half are interested in science-minded careers, science, technology, engineering, and math. And about a third are interested in creative careers. This is interesting. We, we just did a quick free-form words that associate with millennials. We came up with creative and entrepreneurial. Now, here's the deal. Um, our opportunities as a church, when it comes to ministering to these young people who have these particular skills and giftings, right, like Keaton, 
is a, a, a little engineer, right? He's, he's building a PowerPoint slide. He talks about being, being an engineer or an architect. And, and we have this opportunity to, to Christianize our vision of calling in some really, really cool ways to do a vocation Bible school on computer programming or to do a vocation Bible school on design and creativity and on, on music to do a vocation Bible school on what does it mean to be a leader or a performer or an influencer or a communicator? What if we talked about Scripture as a lens through which we could understand how God asks us to use our gifts in the world, which, by the way, is one of the, the, the main reasons I think God gives us his word. One of my friends, Sky Jathani, I showed him this particular PowerPoint slide, and he said, if you think about the book of Genesis and what God ordains work to do, it's, it was interesting. We were having this little epiphany moment, Sky and I. This was a couple of years ago. He said, I believe that God ordains work to produce three outcomes. And in Genesis, before the fall, work does three things. It produces abundance, it produces beauty, and it produces order. When you look at, at how God ordains human beings, they're, they're designed to do these things. We, we want to be people of abundance. We want to be pe people who cultivate beauty. We want to be people who bring order to creation. There's a dark side to those things. Instead of abundance, there's greed. Instead of beauty, there's disorder and, and, and um, 1970s architecture. Uh, there's, you know, instead of order, there's cancer, right? There's, there's all of these, there, there's embezzlement. These are, these are the, 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 the reasons of work going badly, the, the effects of thorns and thistles in creation. But I think, I just, I'm so committed to this notion that we could do a better job here in this province of discipling, of vocationally discipling, discipling students, whether they're Christian or not, right? Like we could, we could say, hey, we're going to help you understand what, what you're here for, how it is that that leadership is, is a gift to you or, or, or your creative talents or something that you could use to bless the world. There's all this incredible evangelistic language that we could use around the, the concept of calling. <clears throat> There's a whole section in, um, in the book of Exodus 35 and 36 about the giftedness um, of, uh, of the, the people who were called to build uh, the tabernacle and it's super interesting because it talks about the fact that he says, um, then Moses told the people of Israel, the Lord has specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> He's filled Bezalel with the spirit of God. By the way, friends, in a, in a charismatic church, this is the very first time I believe that the idea of the spirit of God coming alongside somebody is, is mentioned in scripture. It says he's given him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold and silver and bronze. He is skilled in, in, in engraving and mounting gemstones and, and carving wood. He's a master at every craft. This is, this is uh, Exodus 35. Here's the reason I bring that section of scripture. It, it pertains to this notion of beauty that I'm talking about. But one of the guys that I got a chance to meet was uh, David Greisel. He was the lead architect at one of the, the major league baseball, play, uh, baseball stadiums in Pittsburgh, PNC Park. And, and, and David Greisel said that when he found this verse, it literally saved his faith. Because he realized that there was a connection between his God-gifted abilities to, to build a great stadium and, and what he was to do in the world. 
So here's where we might, we might close our time, and that is to, to, to imagine that as, as we think about these, these headwinds of irrelevance and extremism, of this new moral code, of, of the, the ways in which the church is being pressured, I want us to imagine that we could experience a revived church. That the, the, the way that we can go forward here with these, these, these just a handful of ideas that I've shared with you tonight is that we can experience Jesus in new ways and that part of the call for you here in British Columbia and, and around the nation of Canada and indeed around the world is for this movement to be revived and for us to put Jesus first. And you're doing that already, and I'm here to commend you in some ways for that, but I'm asking you to consider this broader digital Babylon-like culture. And what will it mean for us to be faithful in this new space? What's it going to require of you as you think about what it means for us to partner with this new generation? I'll say more about that tomorrow as we talk about how we can reverse mentor with the generation. We can be mentored with young people, and we can be their mentors in return. Uh, there's, there's incredible opportunities for us to do this. But just like Daniel, there are some incredible costs that we have to count. This isn't as simple as we think. I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to pray for you. And as I do that, I'm going to ask Ken to come. But, but um, why don't you head on up when you have a chance, guys. But this notion of when you look at the characteristics, friends, of when revival breaks out, <laughs> revival breaks out in conditions that are very much like we have today. And what does revival mean? It's not just about the, the culture coming to Jesus. It's about the church being revived. Revived in its practices. Revived in its faithfulness. And these are the things that I believe that you and your churches here in this great, in this great context could find. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Lead Forward podcast. I really like how... David finished um, his talk there that evening where he just said, you know what, there's some challenges, there's some scary stuff, there's some difficulties, but these are the kinds of situations and the kinds of environments in which revival has the possibility to break out. And revival is not just something that happens, but it's something that starts within the church. It starts with leaders who revive in the Lord and churches who are revived who then go out and take that message and take that Holy Spirit with them into the world. So I hope you're encouraged. I hope you learned something. And uh, thanks again for being a part of this. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for subscribing. Please leave a review if this is something that's helpful for you. And God bless you. We'll see you next time on the Lead Forward Podcast. Mm -hmm.